new teaching series. We're going to go through, we, want to, we wanted to teach through the book of 1 Peter over the next number of weeks. And uh, so I want to introduce it today, hopefully a shorter introduction uh, since I've used a, a bunch of time already. So, um, and, and 1 Peter is really all about, well, I mean, it's got lots in it, but it's a lot, it's about endurance through suffering and persecution. And, we li- and in the day we live in, we're seeing remarkable extremes in this area of, of uh, what it, like Christians standing or not standing for Christ. Like on one end, we, we, I didn't think I would, like growing up, I never thought I'd be thinking about this in my lifetime. But on one end, we, we're hearing about people being beheaded. Again, 10, 15 years ago, did you think that that would be something that would be on our radar or that would be a cultural thing that was back again? That seems shocking to me. But we're hearing about people uh, facing that and rejoicing before it happens because of their faith in Christ. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we have other Christians who a simple eye roll at work is enough to make them quake and second guess their faith. So we have these great big extremes, and yet these are both followers of Jesus and so 1 Peter, I think, is great. Whether, whether you're experiencing something out on this end and you need the, the strongest stuff possible to go through the suffering and persecution you're going through, or whether you're out on this end and you just need to be firmed up and strengthened in how you walk out your life in a culture that maybe sometimes exerts some sort of negative pressure against your faith. We wanted to go through First Period and we thought it would be really helpful. So I'm just, today I'm going to really just give it a short introduction and, uh, and then as the weeks go on, we'll walk through that. But we've called this series Resilient because we really believe that our faith is, is resilient, that it can stand in any circumstance, and yet I believe that a lot of the gospel truths that enable us to be resilient, God wants to work out deeper and deeper into our lives so that they're not just something that we're faking but they are real genuine strengths within our lives so that we can stand in the time of testing. So I'm going to start by reading in 1 Peter, and I'm going to read the first nine verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise to God. Oh, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, 
you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cover all that we've read here in, in, in chapter 9 because I want to take us on a bit of a journey. And, um, but I encourage you in the next couple of weeks, um, if, I mean, some of you are following a reading plan of reading through the Bible, but if you want, really want to track along with what we're doing here, read through First Peter. Read through it several times. It would be easy to read through First Peter this afternoon, and you probably could do it in, I don't know, half an hour maybe? It wouldn't take you long to read from one end to the other. Uh, even if you're a slow reader, it would, be, it would be pretty simple to do. So I encourage you to do that. But I'm just gonna, I want to deal with it, just the first few verses here, actually the first two verses, and then I'm going to jump off and we're going to read some other stuff too. First thing is, it's a letter from Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and he says, to God's elect exiles. Now, I want to just jump on that word exiles. Um, often when we think of, um, if you know the Bible and you know about the, the history of the Jewish people, at different points, they were literal exiles from the land of Israel, taken away in captivity to other places like Assyria or Babylon. And they were carried off and uh, served other kingdoms and other kings. And then God in his graciousness brought them back to Israel to reestablish them as a nation. Uh, so often when we, we read the word exile, we, th- we think, of, if, you, if you know that part of the Bible, you might think of that. You might think, oh, he's, he's reading, writing to Jewish people who've been sort of sent away and, and they're in exile away from Israel, right? They're in Asia. That's why we're, we're reading about this. But I want to actually just clarify this really quickly. I, I don't believe it's actually just written to Jewish people who are away from the land of Israel. I think this is actually written uh, in a very different sense. Uh, I think it's actually written to Jews and Gentiles, basically, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish. It's written to followers of Jesus who are feeling a level of exile in their spiritual walk. So what their experience is that I belong to this new kingdom that Jesus has established. I'm a follower of Jesus. There's certain postures and habits and practices and ways to live and, and, and where we go to uh, receive forgiveness and, and how we engage with God and all this. There's a lot of stuff that's sort of new and different. And you know what? The culture around us doesn't always look so positively on this faith that we're walking out. In many ways, even though we might be uh, from the, the province that we live in or, 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 or citizens of the nation that we live in, we feel like foreigners, we feel like strangers, we feel like exiles because we stick out. We stick out. We're not the same. We don't, we don't, we don't march to the same drumbeat as everybody else. And people consider it very strange. And early Christians were very misunderstood. At, you know, one of the ones that caught me when I was in Bible school was that um, some people thought the early Christians were cannibals because they would talk about eating the body and blood of Christ. You know, in, you know when we do communion, the remembrance. Some people misunderstood that and they said, these people are cannibals. Of course, that's easily dispelled, you know, that myth. But they were very misunderstood in the day that they lived. And they felt like our real citizenship is not Roman. 
is not Greek. It's not even Jewish. Our real citizenship is in heaven. Our real citizenship is in the kingdom that Christ is making and he is building, and it's made up of people from all sorts of nations. We feel like exiles. So he writes to them and he says to the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of these different areas, and some think that Peter might have traveled to some of those areas, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now I want you just to, to notice a few things in this, in this three-part sentence of verse 2. First, we've got the what. We've got the fact that they were chosen. What, what's true about these exiles? They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God the Father, in his grace and mercy on people, in his love, decided to enact a plan, to initiate a rescue plan. More than a rescue plan, it was a, it was a rescue plan, it was a renewal plan, it was a reconciliation plan. It was, it was a pretty well-formed plan, and he was wanting uh, to bring people back into relationship with him. Of course, our sin is strange as it makes us, uh, em- it brings us into en- enmity with God or it makes us enemies of God and it actually makes us prime candidates for the wrath of God. But God in his love said, that's not what I have planned. That's not what I desire. I desire them to come to the knowledge of the truth, to be reconciled to me, to be rescued from the wrath of God and to be made new inside, internally, transformed. So that's the what. God the Father's plan. You'll notice that all three parts of the Trinity are involved in this outworking of how this plan goes. So God the Father gets us started. So if you've ever been in a service where you cross yourself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three parts of the Trinity are very involved in this plan. So God initiated it. It was his idea. God the Father of course, in partnership with the Son and the Spirit. And then, so th- and how does it happen? Well, it happens through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It happens through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is going to uh, be the power of this plan, going to bring the power to this plan through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then how, and then, but why? What's the purpose? What's the goal? What's the end result? It says that people will be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, sprinkled with his blood to the Christian refers to getting right with God. Why do we need to be sprinkled with his blood? Well, basically, it's the sacrifice that Jesus makes on our behalf that makes it possible for us to be right with God. Right? We have this great exchange that happens. We receive something we don't deserve being right with God, or his righteousness, right? So we can stand before a God who we should be obliterated before, rightly, because of our sin and selfishness and how we've gone our own way and and turned our noses up to God. And instead, we can stand with right standing and we can stand before God pure and holy and in right standing. Why? Why does that make any sense? Well, we've received from Jesus his righteousness and he, in turn, has taken our sin, selfishness, on himself on the cross. So there's this great trade, this great exchange that's happened. And the goal is that there be those ones who are not sprinkled with his blood, so they're in right standing with God, they have, they're right with God, they have, they have a good relationship with God, they can approach God, 
and to be obedient to Jesus. And that means that we're walking out. You know, we talk about being followers of Jesus. So if you imagine Jesus going somewhere, doing something, changing lives, impacting the world, we're just clipping along on his foot, you know, on his heels a little bit. Going, oh, yeah, that's what you do? Oh, okay, that's what we do. Oh, that's what you do? Oh, that's what we do. Oh, you do that too. Oh, we do that too, right? Obedient to Jesus. So there you got God initiating, the Spirit doing the work, and, and, uh, and eventually um, we've got the people in obedience to Jesus living for him. So I want to just, so you notice the roles that the Trinity plays here. And, um, but let me just, just sum it up this way. You were chosen by God to obey Jesus and thus be out of step with the culture, but in step with Jesus. That's what it means to be an exile. So I'm chosen by God to walk in step with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you do this and you do it this way. And you, you love your enemies? Okay, that's going to be a tall order. Usually, I have other ways of treating my enemies, but that's what you do, that's what you call me to do, that's what a follower of you does. Oh my goodness, that's heavy lifting. I can't even do that. And Jesus is like, yeah, but through I through you can do that. Okay, okay. That's going to make me seem strange. I might feel like an exile in my own country. Some of the things you want me to do, Jesus, seem un-Canadian. Exactly. So, a whole letter written to exiles to give them instructions. Now, I'm going to not go too far into this letter because I want to stop about this big question. Why should we listen to Peter anyhow? Isn't he the single biggest failure on record when it comes to taking a stand for Jesus? I mean, what qualifies him to write with authority on this topic? He's writing to people. Now, just to get the historical context, uh, this is, you know, author or scholars think that this is about the time of Nero, right? Nero is famous for lighting a fire to burn down a lot of Rome because he wanted to rebuild it, right? Now, we don't do that today. We don't go... Yeah, maybe uh, there's a certain section of Moose Jaw we just really want to, you know, make room for stadium. <laughs> Get a couple arsonists to do the job. <laughs> and we'll blame it on those people at Hillcrest. That's what Nero did. Not Hillcrest, but he blamed it on the Christians. Burnt down a section of Rome so he could rebuild it. He didn't want... I don't know what was there. Maybe it was, it was the ghettos or it was the areas that he thought were distasteful or maybe he just wanted the land. That's nice. It overlooks the river. That'd be a great place to build monuments to myself. So he burnt down and then they communicated to the town that this very misunderstood group, these Christians, hey, aren't they cannibals anyhow? That they did it. And what broke out after that was state-sanctioned persecution of Christians on a big scale. So Peter, he's sort of got his finger to the wind and he knows what's happening in the culture and he can see what's coming and he begins to write to these Christians who are soon going to be in a firestorm of persecution. 
and he gives them instructions on how to stand. But let's get back to Peter's resume. His resume for teaching people to stand up in the face of persecution. Wasn't that great initially? Let me just walk you through a little bit of his life. Matthew 4, 18 to 20 tells us one of the initial moments with Peter. There's another initial moment where Andrew actually introduces Peter to Jesus, but this is a moment where Jesus shows up at his workplace. He's a fisherman. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, this is Matthew 4, 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. Again, he's met, I believe he's met these guys already. They're casting net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So Peter was invited to reach people for God. That's what that phrase, fish for people, you know, obviously he's using something a fisherman would grab onto. But he was invited to reach people for God, and he jumped in with both feet. I mean, probably jumped into the water with both feet, but he jumped into the reaching people for God with both feet. Nobody was going to be a better follower of Jesus than Peter. He was going to be God's best partner. No one was going to outdo Peter. We see this in some of the things he says later on. Of course, there's a whole litany of Peter's outbursts throughout the Gospels. I won't get into all of them, but let's just go right to the end of walking with Jesus. And this is um, the night of Jesus' arrest. So before Jesus' crucifixion, there was this arrest. Matthew 26, 31 says... Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Again, talking about Jesus and his followers. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, okay, so he's just told his followers, hey, you're all going to abandon me. Now, that, if you've been walking with a guy for like three years and hanging out with him, that, you know, it's a little insulting. Hey, you're all going to abandon me. Come on. Here, listen to Peter's response. He says, even if all, I don't know about these turkeys, but even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if all fall away on account of you, I I never will. Okay, he's just proclaiming his loyalty at the top level. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter doesn't receive that. He declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples followed and said, yeah, me too, me too. I, I, I wouldn't do it either. Wow, man, I wish I was as tough and loyal and brave as Peter. Man, that guy's got guts. When it comes to the sword swinging, I know he'll be the front. I'm going to go right with Peter. You just follow Peter. He's, he's got guts. He'll be able to stand for Jesus when it gets really tough. That was Peter's, Peter's promise. But Luke records more of Peter's protests than what Jesus said to him, and I want to read that as well. Luke twenty-two thirty-one says, Simon, Simon, again, he was Simon Peter, the couple names for him. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. In other words, to find out what you're made of. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Again, Peter will have none of this. He's, he replies, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me 
three times. You will deny three times that you know me. Now, this one's a little more hopeful, I find, because he not, Jesus says, okay, Peter, you're not, you're not facing the reality of what I've told you is going to happen. You are going to turn tail. You are going to deny me. But here's the hope I want to offer you. I will be praying for you. And when you've come back, Peter's like, I'm not, I'm not even going to go away in the first place. No, no, Peter, when you've come back, when you've come back, your role is going to be to give strength to your brothers. Strength to people who are in the spiritual family that, of, of God. That's what your role is going to be. When you come back. So what happens? Many of us know the story. Luke 22. It says, then seizing them, seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went, out, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. Have you ever been there? I mean, not there exactly, but have you ever been in that moment where you're shocked by your own behavior? Shocked by how intimidated you were? Ashamed of what came out of you when the pressure was on? How does God feel about failures like Peter? How did Jesus respond to Peter's failure? Is there some way for those of us who experience our own personal shame about our own failures, is there some way for us to get a second chance? And if we could get a second chance, if that was even possible, what would it look like? What could it look like? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark. John 21 tells the story. This is after Jesus' crucifixion. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And now he's coming back to speak to his followers. And this is how it goes. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning, a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. There's no other religion that has this. There really isn't. You think, how does it work with God? You disappoint him and does he write you off? How does it work with God? Well, Jesus is the best. I often say, like, if if God had a Facebook page, his profile picture would be Jesus because it's the best representation we've ever seen. And so Jesus gives us that snapshot, and and the stories of Jesus help us to understand this is how he relates to people like you and me. And how does he relate? To a close friend who, who betrayed him who denied him, who left him in the hardest moment. He makes him breakfast on the beach so they can restore their relationship. Has anyone ever done that for you? You let them down huge, big time. It was a a massive, massive letdown. And then you went to work the night shift And you came dragging yourself home and they were at the door with a package of bacon in their hands and they said, let's have breakfast. Let's have breakfast. That's the kind of God we serve. Makes breakfast on the beach for a friend that failed after he comes off the night shift because he's so interested in being reconciled. This whole plan of God, this whole whole thing that he puts into motion, and it's it's big and spectacular, and it's like there's crucifixion, and there's, there's sin and judgment and forgiveness and all these big concepts. Jesus helps us to put really personable um, understanding on it. We just sort of go, oh, this is how you treat failures. This is how you treat losers. This is how you treat people who've even written themselves off. You treat them with grace. You treat them with dignity. And you do what it takes to invite them back into relationship with you. And so Jesus 
reinstates Peter. And we're, I want to just read through this because I think it's fascinating how he does it. He said, when they'd finished eating, conversations are always better after food. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What, more than fishing? Of course, he called him out of fishing in the first place, right? Maybe he's gone back to fishing. We don't know the story. Maybe he's gone back to fishing because at least I don't mess that up. I might be a total failure in every other aspect, but I, I might betray my friends. I might run. I might be a chicken and a coward, but at least I know how to catch fish. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Jesus? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. This must be painful to say. Can you imagine yourself in those shoes? If you failed, and the person you failed is saying, do you love me? You may think, oh, are they here to rub it in? Are they here to, is this an I told you so moment? Is this a, clearly I don't love you because I, I couldn't stand with you when you needed someone to be loyal to you. That's not what Jesus is doing. He says, yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I can imagine those words coming out with pain. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. That's an amazing statement. Again, it's an agricultural society that they live in. They'd understand fish metaphors and, and animal metaphors and lamb metaphors would have made sense to a nation where shepherds were everywhere. But I want, I want you to catch the two, the two things. First is the question about relationship. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then there's a question about partnership. See, when Peter jumped out of the boat in the very beginning, come follow me and I'll make you a, a, a person who fishes for people, he's just like, wow, me in partnership with this guy who I'm pretty sure is the son of God. Well, of course, the Holy Spirit reveals that to him through their experiences. This guy, I mean, he, wow, I, this is pretty, I'm so, wow, I feel important being in partnership with God. I'm going to do God's work and I'm going to reach people for God. And this is so incredibly, and sometimes we get our eyes so focused on the partnership we have with God, what we're going to do for God, that we forget about that it all begins in relationship. It all begins with, do you love me? So when he restores him, there's two parts. He says, do you love me? And it has to start there. It has to start there. Because living for God is not just, okay, I'm on a mission for God, like the Blues Brothers or something like that, and I'm going to go do whatever. Great stuff for God. You can't do great stuff for God and not be in relationship with God. That's the prerequisite. You have to be in right relationship with God. I mean, you have to have received his forgiveness for sin. You have to have accepted that you needed what he has to offer. You have to accept that some of the things he's calling you to do, you can't do without him. That actually you're being called to some of the hardest things you will ever do in life. And that to do those things, you're going to need God. It begins in relationship. And so Jesus makes it simple again. Do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. I mean, this is a very vulnerable moment, right? He said, Lord, you know all things. What's Peter got in mind? Everything. Boastful Peter. I'll never deny you. He knows Jesus remembers that. He wishes he wouldn't. He wishes he couldn't. He wishes that none of his friends who were around and were all like, wow, Peter's awesome, remembered how much he bragged about his faithfulness to to Jesus. He says, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, Peter does love Jesus. But God, through his graciousness, allows him to go through this process. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Here's the interesting part that comes at the end. And I think this ties in with why First Peter is so appropriate. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, speaking to Peter, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. I think Jesus makes three things. Three things, just want to quickly say them once. Jesus restores his relationship with Peter. It's always got to start with relationship. Number two, Jesus restores his partnership with Peter. Peter, you're not done. It's not over. You can still do what we talked about all those years ago. You can still impact people for God. I'm restoring you into that role. But not as the guy who was so self-assured that he and his own willpower could make it happen. This guy now who realizes it's all about dependence on God, he's now ready to feed sheep and fish for people and all those metaphors that they used. Jesus restores Peter to play a role in feeding and leading and reaching others. And the third thing Jesus does is he removes any illusion that following him will be without sacrifice. He removes any illusion. If, if Peter thought, oh, all the hard times are behind me, all the sacrifices behind me, all the difficulties, all the challenges behind me, he said, no, Peter, there's a day coming where people will lead you where you do not want to go. The only disciple that didn't die a martyr's death was, that we know of was John. And he was uh, persecuted and tortured. Tradition tells us that Peter uh, was crucified, just like Jesus, except for with one exception, that he asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be killed in the same way. So I think Jesus, or Peter's resume to write to us in this century and to tell us, don't be surprised about the fiery trial that you might endure. That's what we'll read about that. And how we respond by hanging on to the hope that we have, 
how we, we, we're going to grow, how we're called to grow tougher in our ability to stand, but more tender in our ability to love at the same time. These are all things that Peter knows about and Jesus walked him through and so he becomes a great authority to speak these things to us. But here's what I want to share with you personally and it's for you and it's for me. If you've done a Peter, maybe not as spectacularly awful as Peter's specific experience was because none of us lived in that day, but if you've done a Peter, there's grace for you. Same Jesus who restored his friend on that beach and equipped him for something new, a brand new way in which he was going to serve and and live out this calling to follow Jesus in the world, wants to do that with you. There's two parts of doing a Peter. One, you're going to feel like you can't come to God. You're going to feel like your failure sort of eliminates you from having that close relationship with God, and that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Jesus would want to restore you relationally first. That's the most important thing. I don't know if you've ever asked or answered that question, but just if you can imagine Jesus asking you that question on the beach, do you love me? What does your heart say in response? I'm not sure. Maybe. I want to. How do I? Yes. Yes, I love you. I love you. I realize what you've done for me. I realize you loved me while I was indifferent to you. That you initiated with love for me while I was off chasing other things. I love you. That's the first thing that God wants to establish in your life, that relationship with him, that walking with him, knowing that he is for you and not against you, knowing that he set up everything in the universe so that you could be right with God. Does your heart leap to reply and say, yeah, I love you. And once you answer that question, the second question is, you might be feeling like because of failure in the past, you're really disqualified from serving God. You're really disqualified from even representing him in this world. And maybe that's caused you to just try to fit in. You don't, you're not going to be an exile that stands out. You're just going to be, you're just going to go with the flow because what's the point anyhow? I've failed so badly in the past. Peter's failures in the past were the, the exact ingredients that God used to make him into who he would be in the future. Hear that for your life. Your failure in the past, my failure in the past. Boy, I've got a list. I was almost going to share it with you this morning. We don't have time. Some Sunday I will. Just share the list. I wrote a list once, and it was comical because it was like every age, every stage, major failures in my life. That's the exact fuel that God will use. That's the exact ingredients that God will use to build into you who he wants you to be and how he wants you to serve and how he wants you to lead others. So if you feel disqualified, you are not God is in the restoration business, and he'll do that with you. He'll do that with me. Let's stand.